Let's pray together. So, Father, we're about something supernatural as we come to your word in order to perceive in and through the meaning of the text, divine, self-authenticating glory. So if we are left to ourselves, we will be smart, dead, damned people. And so don't leave us to ourselves in the reading or now in the opening and preaching of the scriptures. Come and may supernatural things happen in every person in this room, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So for the first 50 years or so of my ministry, bringing me up to now more or less, I have focused on trying to help people see and savor and show the glory of God, to make much of the glory of God by enjoying Him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and, says and, and Piper has devoted the last 50 years of his life to saying instead of and, by. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And I've, I've tried to write everything I write to explain that preposition, by. Now, for the last five years or so, um, without abandoning that overarching aim, purpose of my ministry, I have been focusing not so much on making a case for the glory of God shining through our satisfaction in it, but rather the glory of God and its foundation as our knowledge of God, knowledge. So instead of focusing on glory and delight, it's glory and certainty. What's the relationship between the glory of God and your certainty that this is the Word of God? That's what I've been thinking a lot about. So the first and the overarching is the glory of God and spiritual affections, and, and the other one is the glory of God and spiritual knowledge, and that's our focus this morning. So what I would like to do with you is to uh, walk you with me through a progression of thought through uh, three focuses, and they all relate to the glory of God and to ultimately reading the Bible supernaturally, which is the theme of the morning. So here are the three focuses. I'll, I'll name them, and then we'll just take them one at a time, and, and I hope even though it's, it's early on Saturday morning, you will be able to put your thinking caps on and work hard with me because I really meant it when I said in the video, you, you cannot by means of prayer or faith or any other way do an end run around thinking about the Bible in order to discern supernatural reality in it. That's what this two hours this morning are really about. Focus number one, the glory of God and knowing. The Bible has some amazing things to say about the process of just knowing and how it relates to the glory of God. Focus number two will be the glory of God and Scripture. The Bible has something decisive and amazing to say about how the glory of God validates this book as His inspired Word. Focus number three will be the glory of God and reading, okay? Glory of God and knowing, glory of God in Scripture, glory of God and reading. That's where we're going. So focus number one, the glory of God and knowing. If you have a Bible or you can pull one up on your device, I think it's really important that you see John 7, 
uh, 14 to 18, especially verse 17 and 18, for yourself. Because I remember sitting in the chapel at Wheaton College over 50 years ago, this text being preached on blew me away because I had never seen it the way he was talking about it. And that might happen to you here. I don't know how far along you are in your understanding of John, which is probably the most profound book in the Bible, written more simply than any other book in the Bible. Verse 14, chapter 7. Gospel of John. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So he's claiming When I speak, it's divine. It's of God. You better listen. And you better listen. But how do you know that? It's true. Verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm just speaking on my own authority. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Verses 17 and 18 are staggering. Transform the way this philosophy department, you got a philosophy department here? I don't even know. If you do, this changes everything in epistemology. But that's another. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know Will know, will know, will willing precedes and enables knowing. Whether I speak from God or not. Now that's not the way many people think about knowing. So the question is here, isn't it? How can you know? How can you know? Jesus speaks from God. Or how can you know when you read what this book says? He says from God is so, is from God. That's what verse 17 is about. And Jesus' answer to the question, how can you know, is that in a profound way, our willing That capacity in us that inclines to one thing or another, prefers one thing or another, that deep, willing, leaning, inclining, embracing, preferring, that capacity in us governs what we know. Staggering. If anyone's will is in sync with God's will, he'll know. Or to say it another way, deep down in each one of us, there's a root of willing. There's a nature in you. There's a nature that's either rebellious against God and his way or rejoicing in God and his way begrudgingly resistant to the fact that there's a God and he has a way, or compliant, gladly, happily compliant to God and his way. And Jesus is saying, if you are the sort of person who is deep down in your will, preferring another than God and inclining another way than God and resistant to God, 
You can't know anything about Jesus with any certainty. Why not? Now, verse 18 is profoundly significant in getting at how verse 17 works. So help, go, go to work here in your head, all right? I don't know if you think like this at all when you come to the Bible, but you've got to ask questions like, okay, I just, I just had my brain blown out in verse 17, at least I did 50 years ago. Now I've got to add to that, how does verse 18 work in relation to verse 17. So here's what verse 18 says. The one who speaks on his own authority, and we're trying to figure out whether Jesus does or not. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Now we got glory on the table. Remember, this is a focus. We got three focuses. Focus number one, glory and knowing. And, and glory wasn't mentioned in verse 17. Now we're on it, all right? We're on it. What does glory have to do with knowing? And that's, that's where verse 18 is feeding in the truth, all right? So w- try to make that work in your head. Why does verse 18 follow verse 17 and say this? The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. In other words... The decisive mark, Jesus is saying, the decisive mark, stamp of my truthfulness when I claim to be speaking for God is that I seek my Father's glory over everything. I love my Father's glory. I live for my Father's glory. And therefore, I'm true. That's the argument, isn't it, in verse 18? If I am simply, like so many other teachers, just praise me, praise me, praise me, without any reference to God, just me, cut off, no God, he's not in the picture, please praise me. I want to be big in your eyes. No God, he doesn't matter. He's not true. Now, what does that have to do with verse 17? What does it have to do with the fact that we can only know if Jesus is true? Jesus is speaking from God. If our deepest inclination, disposition, willing, is in sync with God's willing. Isn't the answer to this? In verse 18, Jesus rivets our attention on the essence of God's will for man. Namely, that we live for the glory of God, not the glory of ourselves. And that's what verse 18 adds to verse 17. Verse 17 says, your willing needs to be in sync with God's willing in order for you to recognize that Jesus is true. Verse 18 says, here's the essence of that willing, love God glorification more than self-glorification. So, Jesus is not leaving the will of God in verse 17, hanging vaguely in the air, as though it You can't know what it is. He shows the essence of it in verse 18. Now we can tell. You you can tell right now. You can assess, okay, is my will in sync with God's will? Do I will the will of God when the will of God is displayed in verse 18 as, I love God glorification a thousand times more than I love Piper glorification. That's the test. Only put your name in there. God's will is that humans be done with self-exaltation and utterly devoted to God-exaltation. Or, in other words, God's will is a complete renovation 
of our fallen self-centeredness. Otherwise, we can't know anything the way we ought to know. So, the logic of verse 17 now goes like this. If your will, your deep disposition, your inclination, your capacity to prefer, if your will, this deep capacity to incline and prefer and want and choose is, if it is free from a love affair with self-exaltation and treasuring God-exaltation in your life above all things, you're going to know what's true about Jesus. And if it's not, you won't. If you have a love affair with your self-exaltation, which is stronger, rising up down here than God-exaltation, this book will either be a closed, unintelligible book to you, or you will distort it all over the place to justify what you are in sin, which happens, of course, all over the world, both in intellectual places and non-intellectual places. So summary of of focus number one. We're still on focus one, glory and knowing, glory and knowing. And the summary of this focus, this first point, is that um, John 17 and 18 can be summed up more or less like this. Our willing profoundly influences our knowing. The inclinations of our will direct the affirmations of our mind. You might wish it were otherwise. It isn't. And specifically, Jesus says, if our will is not devoted to God-exaltation, but rather is in love with self-exaltation, we will not have any certainty that Jesus spoke from God. You will be filled with doubts day and night. You will have no boldness in your life to testify to anybody, especially at the risk of your life, if you are in love with yourself more than you are in love with the glory of God. That's the the affectional ground of intellectual certainty. End of focus number one. Focus number two, the glory of God and Scripture. We're going to put these two up. So we're done with this one now. We'll come back to it. And we'll put up this one now. How does the glory of God validate objectively, not subjectively in here, but objectively out there, validate Scripture? My my argument, I'll give you my conclusion, and then we'll we'll walk through some passages to see how I, I got here. My argument is, and and I wrote a whole book about it a year ago called uh, Peculiar Glory, the whole Bible authenticates itself, the whole Bible authenticates itself by shining through its meaning, by shining with the distinctive, divine, or peculiar glory of God who inspired it. That's my conclusion. Or to say it another way, we know that the Scriptures are the Word of God because in their true meaning, we see the authenticating, self-authenticating, self-evidencing glory of God. Now, what I have found over the last years is that people hear that and it's like a foreign language to them. Like, they just kind of shake their head like, I, I hear the words coming out of your mouth. They're not connecting with, with my experience. I, I, I'm not even sure I know what you're talking about. Shining. We need shining. Glory. Beauty. My definition of the glory of God, it's almost impossible to define, but would be the beauty, the radiance, of his manifold perfections. I mean, the word glory is 
I mean, closest thing we have besides the word glory in English probably would be beauty. When, when God manifests himself in his intrinsic holiness in Isaiah 6, he says his glory is filling the earth, not his holiness is filling the earth. And so I take the fact that it switches from the word holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. That switch from holiness to glory in Isaiah 6, I take to be a, a statement that in and of himself, his infinite purity and worth are holiness. But as soon as that goes public into your experience, it's shining and it's glory. And it's, it's a spiritual glory, which means it, it's not material. Light is material, very mysterious material that the phys, physics teachers talk about. But it's, it's not spiritual, whereas the glory of God is spiritual. So that's my little effort to define glory. But what I have found is that when I talk like this, the Bible authenticates itself by the fact that when you read it and properly understand it, there stands forth from it a radiance of the peculiar glory of God that can't be explained any other way than this came from God. I find that people say, I just... I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. So, what I want to do to help you is give you three analogies of what I'm talking about. And the analogies might be a little more intelligible because, because you've thought about them more probably. So, let's, let me tick them off and you, you can decide that that is more intelligible than what you just said. And now I'm starting to get what you just said because it's, it's an analogy to what I understand better. Here's the first analogy. Nature. That is the, the physical realm. God intends for us to have a well-grounded confidence that he created the natural world, and the way he gives us that well-grounded confidence, besides the book, this book, he gives us a revelation, a display of his glory in and through nature. Now, I'm not making that up. Two texts. Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling what? The glory of God. So you go outside after this session and you look up to that vast blue dome overhead or better go out at night and go up on a high mountain away from all the lights and see the Milky Way and there's a point He's saying something like, I am glorious. That's what the point of the world is. And he, he said that to us. Or here he says it again in Romans 1. This is amazing. What can be known, known about God is plain to them. And them is everybody on the planet who's got eyes. What can be known to them is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, are clearly. Hear that, all you secular scientists who don't believe in God? It is clear. It is clear. It clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How? In the things that he made. So, here's the point. God intends for every person on this planet to be held accountable at the last day to know him, worship him, and thank him just by looking at the sky. Why? Because the heavens are telling the glory. And we are to see the truth that God made nature because glory, glory is visible through it. Natural glory is not the same as God's glory because the word is he, the heavens are telling the glory. They're pointing to the glory. They're talking about the glory. 
Everybody with eyes sees the glory of nature. People write poems about it. They may be moved to tears about it. They invite everybody to come to the sunrise or the sunset to watch it with them. And they don't see God. They don't see him. God is not nature. We're not pantheists. God made it, the things that have been made. And those who have eyes to see, see the natural glory and through it, know God. They know God. It says so in Romans 1. What can be known about God is plain to them. You can know God. You can't have saving knowledge without gospel, but you can have accountable knowledge. That's analogy number one. If you get that a little bit, I'm arguing the Bible is like, like nature. As God validated his making of the world so that it's his world, he also inspired this book in such a way that you can know this is his book. Like that's his book in the sky out there and he wrote it that way. This is his book here because he wrote it this way. That's the analogy I'm drawing. Now, whether that's a warranted analogy is yet to be established, but I'm saying it is, and we'll see in a minute that it's warranted. Analogy number two, incarnation. Jesus shows up, God-man, right? In, infinite and eternal in the Godhead as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, loving each other, and to save us, God and he resolve that he will come and he will be incarnate as a Jewish teacher. He will live a perfect life. He will die in our place. He will rise again. He'll reign forever. Now, how did God expect, how did Jesus expect people to recognize him that he was God? How, how, how was that supposed to happen? Like, there he is. He's got a nose ears, hair, dresses like everybody else. He eats, he gets tired, he sleeps. And we're supposed to say he's God? Are you kidding me? Yes, you are. Two passages. John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his Glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. They saw it. John says we saw it. When we looked at him and we watched him think and feel and speak and act and love and get angry at sin and take little children on his lap and touch untouchable women and I mean, we, we watched him, and we saw God's glory, and he's real. He's real. That's how God expected it to happen. Or here's John, I mean, uh, yeah, John 14, 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you don't know me. Just jaw-dropping, insane claims coming out of this man's mouth. Like, you want to see the father who made the universe? How long must I stay with you? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? He's... I mean, I don't think he ever sinned, right? But it sounds a little frustrated. <laughs> How can you say, show us the Father? <laughs> Which means his expectation was, you, sh you should know by now. You should see. The Pharisees couldn't see it. They were blind as a bat to the glory of Jesus. They want him out of the way. Kill him. That's an absolute pretender. So, 
I'm not saying there was, you know, lights coming out of his head when I say, we saw his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. I'm not saying his face was neon. I'm saying if you've got eyes to see, if your will is to do God's will, you see it. So, if you ask, how does God intend for his son to be known to be divine, the answer is glory shines through the sun. So you see the connection between the two analogies? Nature, how are you supposed to know it's God's nature that he made that? His glory is shining through it. There's a man, he calls himself the son of God, divine, eternal. How are you supposed to know that? Because God's glory is shining through him. That's how you know. Analogy number three, the gospel. So nature, incarnation, gospel. God intends when you hear the gospel, by gospel now I mean Christ came, lived a perfect life, loved, died in the place of sinners, bore the wrath of God, took away all the sin of his people rose from the dead, triumphant over sin and hell and Satan and reigns in heaven and all who believe in him are counted righteous, sins forgiven, totally accepted, eternal life. That's the gospel that I'm talking about. And I'm arguing now, how does God mean for a preliterate Papua New Guinea tribe having heard that after a story of maybe six months of trying to make plain the history of redemption to them, how are they to know that that's true? And his answer is because there's glory shining through it, divine glory shining through it. Here's the key text, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers until a miracle happens in verse 6, but... We're still at verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. I recommend that you, you mark that phrase, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So the gospel, now the gospel I think in that verse stands for the story, the, the narrative of events around the life and death of Jesus and resurrection, the narrative of events with their interpretation as redemptive for those who believe. That's, that's what I think he means here when he says the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so he's arguing that there's a glory of Christ shining through the gospel, which I'm calling light. And that's how you know. It's real. It's true. If you don't see it when it's opened to you, you are spiritually blind. And you should tremble. You should tremble. And I'm sure there are people in this room right now listening to me who do not see it and I want to scare the wits out of you because you are helpless. I mean, to be blind is a fearful thing. It's a horrible, horrible thing. I know there's whole theologies that will just say, you got control of this. You can decide whether to believe or not, and, and you can decide whether to see or not. You can decide whatever, and I'm saying you can't, and you know you can't. You can't right now make yourself love Jesus. You can't make yourself see Jesus. You can't make yourself delight in Jesus. You can't make yourself be blown away by the glory of Jesus. If you don't see it, you don't see it, and you should tremble. I tremble because I drift toward that in my life. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, which feels like what? It feels like I get up in the morning, I don't feel it anymore. I don't see anything. I'm, I'm looking at these words. I'm not seeing much. That's scary. So, the way you know that the gospel is of God 
is that it, there is a light, a light, a spiritual light that is designed to be seen by what Paul calls in Ephesians 1.18, remember this phrase, the eyes of the heart. Very strange phrase, right? I mean, if you're a heart surgeon, you, you, you know there are no eyes there. You cut it and put, you know, put stents in it. You've, been, you've looked at it a hundred times. There's no eyes there. And you know that's not what he means. He means that deep down at that place of willing, that place of inclining, that place of yearning and preferring, that real you deep down, either there are eyes or there aren't eyes. You see glory here or you don't. Start to sound like why we need reading to be supernatural. Start to make sense why supernatural is not a stupid word to to put on the front of reading. Verse 16 is our hope. It's our only hope. Did I say 16? Six. Verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4 is our only hope. It goes like this. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness. So that's the God who created the universe and said, let there be light. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's shown. That's how you got saved. If you're a Christian in this room, that is, if you've tasted and seen, like the psalm says, something, taste and see, taste and see. If you have tasted and seen that Jesus Christ is more precious than anything in the world, that happened to you. I mean, I find it such good news that the Bible is a very thick book and it is constantly interpreting for you things that happened to you that you didn't have any categories for. So for me, it happened more or less when I was six like I said, I, I have no remembrance of this happening. I have no remembrance of, num- of verse 6 happening to me. It did, or I'm a total hoax. And, and like I said last night, I think in your testimony to your own conscience and to others, it is vastly more important for you to understand what happened to you on the basis of verse 6 than on the basis of your memory. There are a lot of people who have testimonies and they tell what happened to them and they're wrong. (laughs) They're wrong. Their interpretation of their experience is wrong. And it it wows a lot of people. It didn't happen. They think it happened. It didn't. Because the Bible says something very different than what they're saying happened to them. So learn who you are from the Bible, not your memory. Isn't that good news for old people? 71-year-olds who can't remember their kids' names without running through the list? Where are we? We're going to sum up uh, so far. My argument is just as God confirms the world is his by revealing glory in nature... And just as God confirms that Jesus, his son, is his son by revealing glory through the son, and just as God validates that the gospel is real by the light shining through the gospel of the glory of Christ, in the same way the whole Bible is breathed out by God who gives it, imparts to it and through it a peculiar glory so that if you rightly understand it, you'll know it's his. That's the, that's, so I'm back where I, back to my conclusion about glory and scripture. And now last, glory and reading. So glory and knowing, glory and scripture, glory and reading and You'll see how we got here, to reading, I mean, if you ask, how do these first two focuses, glory and knowing and glory and Scripture, relate to each other? How do they work? How does what we saw under the glory of God and knowing relate to what we saw under the glory of God and Scripture? So what we saw under the glory of God and 
Scripture, let's go backwards, a little summary here, is that God, by inspiration, has given us a book, a revelation of His glory. Rightly understood in its proper context, all the texts are opening windows onto God's glory, different facets of the diamond that is distinctively divine. That glory is objectively real. It's not in the eye of the beholder. I'm not arguing for any kind of subjectivist thing here that says, well, there's really no glory here, but if if you are really spiritual enough, you see things that aren't there. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying it's really there. In God's true, inspired, imparted, intended meaning, it's really there. And our job is to get in sync with him so that we can recognize it. So that's the first thing, that there's real, objective, divine revelation of glory when this book is properly understood, shining out from it. And then back to my my first point about the glory of God and knowing we've seen that in order to discern Jesus as real, and I would now say the Scripture as real, something's got to happen to our will, right? If your will is to do His will, you will know that Jesus is speaking from God. Or now putting the two together, focus on Scripture, focus on knowing, putting the two together, since the Scripture provides an objective revelation of the glory of God in the right understanding of texts, This changed heart that no longer is enslaved to self-glorification but is set free to love God-glorification can now see it. See it here and know. And what a power and a liberty comes into your life. So that's the the way the two are coming together. Now here's here's an implication of that. There is not a person in this room or on this planet who can be freed from our bondage to self-glorification without the Holy Spirit's sovereign work. We're all blind. We're all dead. We're all rebels. We are all in the grip of what Paul calls the mind of the flesh and not the mind of the Spirit. We don't have the mind of the Spirit until the Holy Spirit does the miracle. Remember last night, nobody can say Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit do a miracle and change them from loving their own lordship to loving his lordship. That's a miracle. You see somebody who's utterly devoted to the total sovereignty of Jesus in their lives, savingly and in every other way, a miracle has happened to them. They are supernatural people. That has to happen, and we call that new birth, right? We call it new birth. So Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, 3, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, now born again would mean the heart of resistant, rebellious Anti-God is taken out. That old heart is taken out. And by the Spirit, we're given a new heart. And that new heart is tender and teachable and supple and yielding and compliant and delighting in God's way and God's will and God's beauty. And that's what new birth is. Old heart taken out. You can't anymore make that happen than you can, than you can jump over the moon, which is what we sang last night. When God says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus didn't say, let me think about it. He's dead. What made him alive? The voice. So that's got to happen to you. That's why I said a while ago you should tremble if it hasn't happened because you can't make it happen. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person, that's what we all are by nature, the natural person before regeneration, before new birth, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 
for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Not able to. Not able to. The only hope for seeing the glory of God in Scripture is to be born again. And that is a supernatural miracle. It's a miracle of God. It's what's described here in verse 6 of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shone, shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When that happens, we are new creatures. We're born again. We have new spiritual eyes. We have new spiritual taste buds, which is why Peter says in in 1 Peter 2, 3, that you should desire the spiritual milk of the Word so that by it you may grow up into salvation. And then he adds this, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you haven't tasted, everything I just said won't work for you. You can go to the Bible all you want, try to grow up into salvation. You won't because you haven't tasted anything. You haven't seen, you haven't felt, you haven't tasted. All these analogies to say the miracle hasn't happened of new birth by which Jesus is now shining with greater beauty and worth than anything in the world. He who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves anything, including his own life, more than me is not worthy of me. That takes a new birth for that to happen. So regeneration is essential. And now I'm arguing that when regeneration meets um, inspiration, This is not a natural book. This is a supernatural book because it was inspired by God. This is not a natural person anymore. This is a supernatural person, meaning I have a new nature. I'm still the old John Piper, and there are two natures going on in me, and the flesh fights with the spirit, and temptations are going to be there until I'm home with Jesus. But there's a new creature, right? That's what the new birth does. A new creature. With that regenerated new creature meets this Inspired book, glory is seen. And you know that it's real. Now, I've got two and a half minutes left, and we'll close like this. Connect that with reading. And here I'm just rehearsing what I said in the video. And, and I don't know, there are about 12 of those, if you want to watch them, about reading the Bible supernaturally at Desiring God. Ephesians chapter 4, chapter 3, verse 4, simply is glorious. It says this, Ephesians 3, verse 4, the mystery was made known to me. So this is Paul claiming revelation. The The mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. By reading this, it's just a participle. It says, reading this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Just think of it. God could have done it another way for thousands of years. He didn't. He made the point of contact between your regenerate soul and his mysteries of glory reading. That's what it says. By reading, by reading, you, ordinary person in Phoenix, you will Join me in perceiving divine revelation by which the glorious mysteries of God are shed abroad in the human soul by reading. That's amazing. One more clarification before I close. When I say, and this, this is now a bridge to the next session, which is in about 20 minutes. When I say that um, there's a revelation of glory that validates, vindicates, authenticates this book as God's truth, when I, when I say there's glory, I, 
I don't mean that um, there's a there's light shining off the page that would cause people to go fall down somewhere. I don't I don't mean it's magical, like whoa, the cover is glowing. This must be a divine book. That's magic. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that the point where the glory moves from God to your soul and validates this is meaning, true, perceived meaning that the authors, including the divine author, meant to communicate. Reality they meant for you to see by reading, which means that all my talk about the necessity of supernatural, you got to be made supernatural, the book is already supernatural, they have to come together supernaturally by faith if you're to see divine glory. When I say all that, I'm not canceling out the necessity to naturally read supernaturally, which is what we're going to do next hour. I'm going to show you what I mean with an overhead and a text and like we do and look at the book. So that's where we're going. And the implication, therefore, is don't do an end run around going to college. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're studying. I'm glad you're thinking. I think thinking is necessary, and I'll I'll show you from the Bible why I think thinking, thinking rightly, construing words and phrases and clauses and logic and paragraphs is necessary in order to see supernatural reality. So let's pray and then we'll make, take a break. Father in heaven, I pray now that as we move into the the actual demonstration of, of a text and what I'm talking about, you would help us. Keep us focused, keep us in sync. And for those, Lord, who are, are trembling with the fact that this, this is such a foreign language to them that glory and sight and eyes of heart and regener- regeneration is a foreign thing to them, would you work that miracle? Cause them to simply say, I see it. I see it and be born again. I pray in Jesus' name.